Our scriptures this morning come from the book of Proverbs, chapter 1, verses 20 to 22 and 32 to 33, and then chapter 8, verses 10 through 16 and 22 through 31. Wisdom cries aloud in the street. In the markets, she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gates, she speaks. How long, simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? For the simple are killed by their turning away, and the complacency of fools destroys them. But whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. Take my instruction instead of silver, and knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is better than jewels, and all that you may desire cannot compare with her. I, wisdom, dwell with prudence, and I find knowledge and discretion. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. I have counsel and sound wisdom. I have insight. I have strength. By me, kings reign, and rulers decree what is just. By me, princes rule, and nobles, all who govern justly. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago I was set up at the first, before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water. Before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. Before he made the earth with its fields or the first of the dust of the world, when he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limits so that the waters might not transgress his command, When he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. This is God's word. Amen. Thank you, Susan. Good morning. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Church of the Redeemer. Thank you for uh, being with us today. I know many of you are getting ready for school, and there's lots of things going on, so we're glad you're here this morning with us to begin what's going to be a series out of the book of Proverbs that's going to take us throughout the fall all the way to Christmas time. And so we're going to be in this book for a while, uh, and I am at one time very excited about the opportunity to do this. The second time, very aware that there is a great challenge in the preaching of this book, particularly for me as a young man. And I'm holding on to the fact that I'm a young man for a while too, by the way, so just, okay. So for example, Proverbs 20.29 says, The glory of the young man is their strength, but the, splendor of the old, but the splendor of old men is their gray hair. Okay? What that, Proverbs, what that proverb means is I'm, the, the glory of, the young, of, of young men is their strength. What makes young men valuable to the community is their, is their energy and their enthusiasm. What makes older men valuable to the community is their, their wisdom, their life experience, their gray hair. There's glory in both. So I'm not supposed to be wise yet. I haven't lived long enough to be wise yet. 
I've not made enough mistakes to be wise yet. So I get a free pass on being stupid for a few more years. Okay? I'm a young man, which means grade me an A in enthusiasm, but most of the time a C- minus or worse in wisdom. But this is a book about how to become wise. So I'm swimming upstream, which means you need to pray for me and for Jonathan and for the, all of us who are young who are going to be. Uh, we're going to have to get Terry uh, up here for this series, I think. Provide a little relief. Right? So pray for us. Now, let me be specific about this, okay? The reason it works this way is that young people tend to be idealists, and older people tend to be, most of the time, a lot more nuanced. Young people like rules. Uh, They like things black and white. But as you go through life, you learn that very few things are black and white. And so older people tend to become much softer, much, much more patient, much more aware of life's complexities. And what you learn from the book of Proverbs is that becoming wise is all about how to live there in the messiness of life. Becoming wise is about how to make good decisions in all the areas of life where there aren't hard, fast rules that you can apply. And that's what makes studying Proverbs so hard. It's really, really messy. Proverbs is really, really messy. At times, and commentators have pointed this out, even contradictory. But Proverbs is like that because life is like that. And I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. Let me give you just one example, okay? One of the funnier examples from Proverbs 26, so that you can understand what's hard and what's messy about this book as it relates to life. In Proverbs 26, verse 4, uh, the, the sage says, Don't answer a fool according to his folly. So you think, okay, great, good. There's a rule. Don't, if somebody's being silly, I'm just to keep my mouth shut. Don't answer a fool according to his folly. 24, 26, 4. Then in the very next verse... 26.5, answer a fool according to his folly. Don't answer a fool according to his folly. Answer a fool according to his folly. Well, which is it? And the older people in the room know, well, it depends. I don't like that. Right? I need, I need some kind of rule. And Proverbs doesn't give it to me. What Proverbs warns me and us and, and all, you know, all of us of is, is trying to take very complex things and bring them down to very simple answers, and it just won't do that. And so there's a particular methodology we've got to follow as we go throughout this book, okay? And what we have to be very careful of is, is not doing this. What people tend to do when they read Proverbs is they isolate a particular proverb, uh, and, and they take it out, and they begin to form an ideology around one particular verse. It's not meant to be handled that way. It's not meant to be read that way. You're going to do a lot of damage, uh, if you treat it that way. The Proverbs are meant to be read uh, and taken as collectively and as a whole. And one, a distinct memory I have of my childhood uh, is w- one particular point in, in my father's rearing of me. He came to me and he said, uh, he called me into his office and he sat me down and we began to read Proverbs together. And for a time, we just went into his office, we would read a little bit of Proverbs, we'd stop, we would talk about what we've read. That's exactly how Proverbs is meant to be handled. It is a training manual for young men and how to become competent in regard to the complex realities of life. See, Proverbs are not promises. You, you, see, you can't, you can't go to Proverbs 22.6, for example. Train up a child in the way that he should go, and when he's old, he will not depart from it. You, it's bad exegesis to go to that proverb and turn it into a promise. And say, man, if I just do the things I'm supposed to do, 
then everything you know, that I hope for my kids is going to turn out okay because there are plenty of people who have been very faithful as parents and their kids haven't turned out the way they were hoping. Life's too complex. There are too many contributing factors to simply take that verse and turn it into you know, to some kind of formulaic parenting strategy. Proverbs are nuanced. They're conversation starters. They, they deconstruct all of the ways that we are trying to look at the world to try to make us more well-rounded. And what that means is, is I have no hope this morning and for the next, what is it, 15 weeks of doing anything but offending every single person in the room. I, I, I'm, if I do my job this morning, there's going to be a point in this sermon where you're going to be a little bit mad at me. If Proverbs is doing its job in your life, that's how it's going to feel. So what you've got to promise is that you'll come and talk to me about it so that together we can figure out how to be wise in these things. Because the, the goal is wisdom. The goal of reading through Proverbs, the goal of this study is that we would become wise. And so I want to see four things about wisdom from these verses we've read this morning. Okay, Four things about wisdom in particular as we kind of intro this study in the book of Proverbs. These four things. I want you to see the importance of it. I want to provide a definition of it for you. I want you to see the problem or the obstacle to becoming a person that's wise, and then ultimately the solution. So there's the importance of wisdom, the definition of wisdom, the problem with wisdom or the obstacle to wisdom, and then the solution to becoming wise. All four of those things this morning. First, let's just start with the importance of wisdom. Okay? Why is wisdom, why is it so important that we become people who are wise? Uh, there's a story in 1 Kings chapter 3, about the early days of the reign of King Solomon, one of Israel's greatest kings, the son of King David, uh, who is primarily responsible for the book of Proverbs, incidentally. God came to Solomon in his own personal Aladdin and genie in the lamp moment and said, Solomon, ask me for anything and I'll give it to you. Anything you want, Solomon. I'm so delighted in you, my heart is so... Uh, uh, you know, for you, that whatever you ask of me, I will give it to you, anything you want. Solomon could have asked for riches, and God would have made him rich. He could have asked for power, uh, and God would have given it to him. He could have asked for long life, and God would have granted long life to him. He could have asked God to avenge his political enemies, and God would have worked to do that. But he didn't ask for any of those things. Here was Solomon's request. You probably know the story. He said, O Lord my God, You have made me king in the place of my father, David, although I am but a little child. I do do not know how to go out or to come in. Let me translate. I have no clue what I'm doing. Therefore, make me wise so that I might govern your people well and discern between good and evil. And the story there in 1 Kings goes on to say that God was so pleased with Solomon's request that he promised to make him wise and discerning. Uh, And that's ultimately what Solomon became known for. And again, he wrote these Proverbs. But God also promised to give him what he did not ask for. Riches, power, honor, victory in battle, and a long life. So what's the point of the story? Well, of course, Solomon was being commended by God for his selflessness. He didn't take this opportunity the way I would, most of us would, to ask God for something that would be an expression of just his own desires. He didn't take the opportunity to advantage himself. He asked for what he needed to do his job well. He asked for what he needed to be able to be a blessing to his people. It was a selfless request on his part. Of course, that's true. 
But the point of the story is that not just that he was selfless and God committed him for it, but he got it right. Make me wise was the right answer to the question. And so if the same question was posed to each of us, what we learn is we should ask for wisdom too. And what Proverbs 8, verses 10 through 12, and you can look there, says, says wisdom is crying out and wisdom says that we should prefer her above silver and gold and jewels and anything else in the world that you can think of that you might want. And so what the teaching of this proverb, this series of Proverbs is, is that given the choice between winning the lotto and becoming wise, you should choose wisdom. That's silly. I mean, I can, you just feel it, right? That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my entire life. You're proving the point. Right? So a couple of reasons why this is true. For one, what is better than good circumstances is the ability to grow and flourish no matter what your circumstances are. Because, let's be honest, you hardly ever achieve the circumstances that you want. And if you do, they don't stay that way for very long. And so, if you were blessed enough to get riches, but you lacked wisdom, you wouldn't be rich for very long. If you were to become powerful and successful, but you weren't wise, it would ruin you and probably the lives of the people around you. So if, if we're going to make it through life and have a good life and live an abundant life, we need wisdom. Second practical reason. If you have wisdom, it can make up for a, for, for a lack of a lot of other things. So Proverbs fifteen sixteen better with a little better a little better a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. But there's a third reason, and I'm just kind of you know just some practical things. The third reason is the third reason that wisdom should be desired above all things, riches and gold and silver and jewels, is that most of the situations you're confronted with in life, most of the decisions you're forced to make are are, are in areas where the rules don't apply. Where there's just, there's just not a lot of information to go on. So do I get married? Well, maybe yes, maybe no. I mean, there's some pretty good guidelines for that. But, okay, who do I marry? You know, when do I, when do I get married? How long should the engagement be? Where do we, you know, all these kinds of things. See, wisdom, wisdom is in the realm of application. Wisdom is strategy. Wisdom, as Jonathan's already said, wisdom deals with the gray areas of life where there's no hard, fast rules and we need God to lead and guide us and to help us make good decisions because life is full of situations like that. A couple of examples, maybe, to help. So the scripture very clearly, in Ephesians chapter 4 says, we're to speak the truth in love to one another, right? So, so an obvious command that is upon every one of our lives is we're, to, we're commanded to say hard things to one another, but it's not enough. And here's... Oh, Here's what, you know, people in their enthusiasm will say, well, you know, I'm told, you know, I'm told I got to speak hard things, so here I go. Oh, no, no, no. No, you need obedience and you need wisdom. Right? So you need wisdom. How do you say those things? When do you say those things? Who do you take with you? What, you know, all these different parts of obeying that command that can either make or break what God intends to happen as we do that for one another. It's not enough to just say, God says i got to do it, I'm going to do it. No, no, you need to be wise. Okay? Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. You need to hear me say, I believe every single person in this room who calls themselves a Christian, the, the, um, 
the demand that your life extend all the way out to all of the nations of the earth, I believe that is on every single life in this room of every single Christian. But I don't mean that, I don't think that means that every single person in the room has to sell their house and their car, pack up their life, and move to the other side of the world. I think for a lot of people it means that. But somehow we've got to go into all the world and make disciples. Okay, if that's the command, then what I need is wisdom to figure out, okay, how do I, how do I begin to work that out of my, you know, my life? Does it mean I go? Does it mean I stay? Okay, if I stay, does it mean I go short term for a while? But how and when and for how long and where and with whom? Okay, you beginning to see? And it's an all, see, so... What's going to make it or break it in our lives as followers of Jesus is not just our desire to obey his commands, but the wisdom with which we carry those things out. And for that reason, Proverbs says, wisdom should be the thing you're searching after, the thing you're going after more than silver and gold and jewels or anything else that you can think of. It's that important. Secondly, that leads us to the second thing then. If that is why wisdom is so important, if that is the value of pursuing it, uh, then we need to define it. Because at the beginning here, we've got to get in our brains and have a shared understanding of what we mean when we talk about uh, what Proverbs means when when it uses this word wisdom. So a definition of wisdom. And this really comes out in the synonyms that Proverbs uses to describe wisdom, particularly in verses 12 through 16. But these synonyms reoccur throughout the book. All throughout Proverbs. And so, for example, we're told that wisdom dwells with prudence. Verse 12. Wisdom is described as knowledge and discretion. Again, verse 12. Wisdom is counsel. Verse 14. It's insight. Again, in verse 14. So you put all of these synonyms together. And if I could boil it down, here's basically what the book of Proverbs. And I've had help from commentators and people smarter than me uh, to put all this together. But basically, here's what it means. There's a couple of different parts of this. First. Wisdom is practical know-how. It is knowing how things work. It's knowing how the parts of things fit together. So when the Bible talks, when Proverbs talks about a wise person, it's a person who can make connections and knows how it is that things are meant to work and how they fit together. But secondly, it's not only the ability to to kind of know how things, it's not practical know-how only, but it's also the ability to look into a situation and make an accurate assessment of things. So it's not just knowing how things work, it's knowing also how things really are. It's being able to make an intuitive diagnosis of a situation and then forecast potential outcomes based upon what you see and observe. I mean, have you ever met anybody like that? Maybe you know what I'm talking about. I mean, there are people who can hear the heart in the words of the mouth, right? Or who can see beyond what is right in front of them, or who can walk into a room and intuitively, intuitively feel tension or awkwardness or whatever it might be. So wisdom is this. Wisdom is this intuitive perceptiveness. It's knowing how things work, knowing how things really are, and then being able to strategize and work things out. So it's a practical know-how, it's a perceptiveness, but then ultimately it's being able to formulate conclusions and know what to do about the information that you've gathered. So wisdom is an adeptness in problem solving. So look there in verse 14, we're told wisdom provides counsel and that by wisdom kings reign and princes rule, 15, verse 15 and 16. And that word counsel refers 
to political or military advice given to a king by his advisors or his generals. So how do kings make good decisions in battle? They gather intelligence and they form strategies. That's the process of wisdom. And so all that leads to the definition we're going to be using. And here's just how we're going to come back to this over and over again, how we're going to lay out and define wisdom. A theologian, Gerhard von Rod, uh, is his definition. He just said, wisdom is competency with regard to the complex realities of life. And we're going to unpack that, so don't, don't worry about it too much. Wisdom is competency with regard to the complex realities of life. So wise people have knowledge and they have character, but what is unique about them is they have an uncanny ability to make good decisions and to do the right thing even when the rules don't apply. In other words, they're at their best when the lines between right and wrong, good and bad, are fuzzy. Wisdom is not always doing the right thing. That's being moral. Wisdom is not just do, always doing the right thing. Wisdom is the ability to make good decisions when it's not clear what the right thing to do is. Do you understand? Do you see the distinction? And so let me unpack that just a little bit more by looking at the third thing about wisdom from this passage. And that is that there's a problem. There's an obstacle that we must overcome to becoming wise. Why is wisdom? You know, if wisdom is to be desired, why, and we all know this from experience, do there seem to be so few wise people around? And here's the part where you just got to bear with me because this is going to be hard. Okay? Proverbs 8, if you look there, is a creation account, but it's a unique in all of ancient literature because in the other ancient creation accounts, the universe, we're told, was born out of some cosmic conflict or power struggle. So in, in the other you know, ancient peoples, their creation stories, power is what birthed the universe. But here in Proverbs 8, we're told that in the Hebrew worldview, it was wisdom that was with God in the beginning. You see verse 30, by his side, this is great... Like a master workman weaving the fabric of the created order together uh, according to, you know, obedience to the commands of God. And so the summary teaching of all of that is then that there is a design in the universe that God has created the world according to a certain, according to a certain pattern or there's a fabric. There, there's a design in the universe. God's created the world according to wisdom. And so to live wisely then is to acknowledge this pattern, this fabric, this design in the created order, and to live according to it. And what Proverbs teaches is, is that life will work to a certain degree if you do that. And it will disintegrate and it will fall apart if you try to live contrary to the design and the, and the fabric of, of the created order. And so what Proverbs does is Proverbs contrast the wise person with the fool. And i got to be honest, it's un- I'm going to have to use the word fool. I'm going to have to say you're a fool a lot, and that's just uncomfortable to me, right? Because that's just offensive, you know, to call somebody a fool. You know, but Proverbs very squarely to- says the opposite of a wise person is a person who is a fool. And a fool, I want to define a fool for you this morning. A fool is a person who doesn't live in dependence upon God. He's close-minded. Bruce Walkie, who's a seminary professor of mine, and wrote kind of the, 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 um, the biggest, fattest, best commentary in the book of Proverbs, he says a fool's a blockhead. Isn't that great? 
Here's his, he says he is fixed in the correctness of his own opinion. Oh, that got some. Did you hear that? Did y'all hear that? Blindly committed to his own way of seeing things. Self-defined, obstinate, unteachable. And so a few Proverbs, just to get this in our mind. Uh, Proverbs 12, 15, the way of the fool is right in his own eyes. See, that's the fool. A fool is a person who is always right in their own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. A fool, Proverbs 18.2, a fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. <laughs> that's what I love that. that gonna, oh, gosh. You know, that's, that's, just, that's right to the... A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. A fool talks a whole lot more than he listens. Proverbs 15.5, a fool despises instruction. But whoever, he, whoever heeds reproof is prudent. So a fool is someone who is fixed in the correctness of his own opinion, who is closed-minded, unteachable, obstinate, self-defined. So what Proverbs is teaching us is that the more sure you are about your opinion of things, the less dependent upon God you are, and that's a recipe for disaster. And according to Proverbs, in light of what we've already said about this being a creation account, there are two types of fools. And for this, I'm going kind of to the, you know, to the 40-foot level. So I'm not necessarily directly pulling this out of the text that's in front of us, but just the general sense of the book of Proverbs as a whole. There are really two types, and we have to see this in order, order to understand what God's teaching us about wisdom here. There is what we're going to call the relativistic fool, and then there's the moralistic fool. And I know those are big words, so hang in there with me, okay? But a relativistic fool... Uh, is a typical postmodern secular person in our culture who doesn't believe there's a design. Uh, this is the person who says, you know, I can live any way I want to. I can decide for myself what's right and what's wrong. Or that might be right for you, but it's not right for me. There is no moral absolute. There is no pattern, no fabric in the created order. And so the relativist doesn't believe that the world was created by God and that there's a transcendent order uh, in the universe that you have to abide by. A relativist is committed to being completely self-defined, living completely independent of God. But Proverbs says if you live that way, you're a fool. If you ignore God's design, you're a fool. If you don't listen carefully to what God says about how things work, you're a fool because he created it. Not you. And he knows how it works. He knows how life works. He knows how relationships work. He knows how marriage works. He knows how parenting, you know, and kids work. He knows the way things work, so you ought to listen to him. But there's another kind of fool. Not just the relativistic fool, but there's also the moralistic fool. And here's where Proverbs is so balanced. Because, see, the book says if you will not admit that there's a pattern that you have to submit to, if you want to make up all the rules on your own, you're a fool. But if you think... On the other hand, that you can see the whole pattern if you're self-assured that you've got it all figured out, that there are no exceptions and no nuances, you know, and you, and you pretty much know the way it goes, then you're fooled then too. See, we are completely, on the one hand, dependent upon God and his revelation to know how things work in the world, but God's revelation is not exhaustive. We can't possibly know all the answers all of the time. There's a design, but... Let's be honest, right? And here's where the wisdom part comes in. There is a design, and we love, Christians love to point out the design, 
But what we don't what we don't talk about is the design doesn't explain how life really works all the time. Life's full of exceptions. And so when you read Proverbs, there are rules. And what moralistic people tend to like, oh, there's a rule. I like the rules. But then if you keep reading, Proverbs gives you a rule, and then in the very next chapter, it'll give you the exception to the rule. And your head starts to spin. And so this is where people really get messed up. The typical approach is read a single proverb, form an ideology around it, but that doesn't work. That's not the way to wisdom. Life doesn't work that way. You can't reduce the complex realities of life down to simple explanations and simple solutions. It's far too messy for that. So the best illustration of what I mean by the moralistic fool is Job's friends. If you know the story of Job, Job was a righteous man who God struck and he lost everything. His friends were moralistic people. They had a particular ideology, and their ideology was God blesses good people, he curses bad people. In their mind, this is the way life worked. And so they came to Job with this kind of intact, God blesses good people, he curses bad people. It was going pretty bad for Job. So they come to him, and they're the worst counselors in the world, because basically what they say to him is, if you've sinned, you've sinned God's obviously mad at you. And the whole point of the book is to, is to deconstruct that whole way of looking at things. It's all wrong. All, that whole way, you know, here, here's what I believe. I, good people are rewarded. Bad people are cursed. Job, you're being cursed, so obviously you've done something that God's really angry about. And what's being revealed in that and in what Proverbs is teaching us is that the moralist has the same goal as the relativist. He wants to live independently of God too. And if he can convince himself that he knows how things work, then he doesn't need God. He's in the place of God. He's got it all figured out. And so for moralists, there are only two categories in life. There's right and wrong. There's not three categories. There are only two, right and wrong. And what Proverbs is going to teach us, what's going to help us to become a people who can really impact and change a city and, and be, and be um, healthy and whole relationally and in our family you know, dynamics, is we need to add a third category to those two categories. categories. And the third category is there's not, it's not just a matter. Life is not just a matter of right and wrong, but there's a third category, and that's wise. What's wise? So there are rules, right? Speak the truth. Be salt and light. Go into all the world. And then there are strategies. There are strategies about how to get that done, but, but moralists don't have strategies. Everything's a rule. And you're either right or you're wrong, and that's what a moralist wants. Jonathan said they want, he wants to be right. He needs to be right. My way is the only way. I'm right, and everybody who doesn't agree with me is wrong. What you have to be careful of is you get to these places like we read a few weeks ago in 1 Corinthians 8 where there, 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 are, um, there are divisions and there are conflict that pops up in the church between the strong and the weak over things that Paul says very clearly are not matters of express commands from God but are application, strategy issues. Whether to eat food that's been sacrificed to idols. You guys remember reading this over the last few weeks. You know, Do you drink alcohol? Do you not drink alcohol? By the way, that is a strategy, not a rule. Because the rule is don't be drunk, right? So what we do is we take strategies, turn them into rules. But, but, but Paul's saying, be very careful. There are all these places where you're dealing with issues of strategy and application. And we're not to quarrel or to despise with one another or to pass judgment on one another in these things. He says, in the vast majority of life situations where it is unclear what the right thing to do, instead of just passing judgment on one another, we need to help one another be wise. And the reason moralism is so foolish, 
And I'm spending a lot more time on this type of fool, by the way, because there are a lot more of us in this room than the other kind. I said us. The reason moralism is so foolish is because life is full of situations that are very complex, very nuanced, and if you try to reduce them down to a rule or to a simple solution, you're not going to be wise because you're going to be out of touch with reality. See, wisdom is competency with regards to the complex realities of life, and here's where I just have no hope but to get myself in a little bit of trouble, okay? Because I have to show you an example of this. So take an example, and let's use the example of we've said that we want to be a people that attacks the issue of poverty in our city. So how do you care for the poor, right? And in order to be able to know how to care for the poor, what strategies you're going to use in attacking poverty in the city, you've got to come up with some sense of the causes of poverty and how all these things work, you know. So how do we do? see it's strategy level. It's application level of all the commands God gives us of caring for the poor. Well, Proverbs helps because in Proverbs 14, 23, we're told in all work there's profit, but mere talk tends only to poverty. And so if you're a conservative person, oh, yeah, I like that, right? That's the problem. See, you can take it out and form a doctrine with it. Poor people are poor because they're lazy. This is, the, this is the typical conservative, you know, the, when, when conservatism goes bad, that's, that's the kind of stuff you hear. And Proverbs is very clear. Let me, if you're lazy and you refuse to work, it's not going to go well with you. But there's a problem. And the problem is, is life is far too nuanced than that, and we have to be careful not to be reductionistic. And that's the problem with conservatism And liberalism is they're both reductionistic. They take very complex issues and try to come up with a simple, straightforward explanation or solution. So, of course, of course, it's true. If you don't work hard, you'll end up poor. But we've we've all met plenty of people who are hard workers and they're still poor. And so to be wise, what Proverbs wants, you've got to see the complexity. You've got to see that, yes, it's true what Proverbs says, that if you don't work, it's going to go badly for you. But you've also got to see Proverbs 13, 23. The fallow ground of the poor would yield much fruit, but it's swept away through injustice. And if you're a more liberal mindset, you're like, amen, I like that one. You know, the conservative says, amen, I like that one. The liberal says, amen, I like that one. And the two are looking at one another. Wait a minute. Proverbs is not saying you're right and I'm wrong. And it's not saying I'm right and you're wrong. It's saying we're both wrong. Or at least we're both making it too simple. So which is it? Is it the conservative answer? Is it the liberal answer? Hmm. See, now we're becoming wise. And this is going to get me in trouble. I've said this, but this sentence right here. If you are blindly loyal to a particular ideology, then Proverbs says, be careful. You might be a fool. Because you're being reductionistic. You're out of touch with reality. You're making it too simple. You're making it an either-or you know, solution when things aren't nearly as black and white as we think they are. Because the relativist, see, the relativist says there is no right and wrong. The moralist says there's only right and wrong. Both are fools. Both live independently of God. Both are out of touch with reality. So just be careful. Be careful. Allow for the complex, allow for the nuance in life. Allow for, you know, we have to be careful not to reduce things down. 
Oh, simple ones, Proverbs warns, right? It's the simple ones who love their simple ways that Proverbs says are going to get into trouble. And so that's, that's the obstacle, okay, is we have, to deal, we have to deal with the tension of those two things. Okay, but then finally then, so what's the solution? If wisdom is defined as competency with regard to the complex realities of life, wisdom is application, wisdom is strategy, wisdom deals with the gray areas where there are no hard, fast rules and we need God to lead and guide us and help us to make good decisions, then how do you get, you know, how do you get wisdom? See, what you need, wisdom requires dependence upon God. In a couple of different directions. First, it is dependent upon God to reveal himself. In other words, there's no other way for me to know how life works except that the creator has made it known to me. And therefore, to be wise means to reject any and all independent, autonomous interpretations of reality. I mean, wisdom acknowledges God as the creator and seeks to live under his design and pattern and fabric and his authority. But at the same time, at the same time, no matter how much I learn... I know I never know exhaustively, and therefore wisdom requires dependence upon God to reveal his will to me on an ongoing basis from day to day. So in order to be a wise person, I can't become overly confident about my strategies and my ideologies. We are are Presbyterian and Reformed, and one of the great uh, statements that came out of the Protestant Reformation was a Latin phrase, simpri reformanda. And it means always reforming, always rethinking, always going back and, 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 and thinking things out. Never, never coming to a settled, never feeling like I finally arrived, I have nothing more to learn. That's a wise person. So we can't become so sure of our opinions, we stop listening and learning. Because the more sure you are of your opinion of things, the less dependent upon God, you are. So what's the solution? How do we become wise? And the clue in the text, did you notice, is the feature of the text where wisdom is personified. In Proverbs 1 and Proverbs 8, wisdom is, is talking. In other words, wisdom, the solution that we're seeking is that wisdom is a person. That's what Proverbs is teaching us. And this is what Proverbs is ultimately pointing us to, that wisdom is a person we can know and love uh, and a relationship with that person will make us wise. And if, that's how you get wisdom, right? You know this. It, it, you become wise by being related to wise people. But what if you didn't have a father to help you be wise, or a mentor, or a counselor, or a friend? According to Proverbs, wisdom is a person you can have a relationship with that will turn you into a wise person. And in the New Testament, in John chapter 1, what John has to say there in John 1 is almost entirely based upon Proverbs 8. And in John 1, John says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Greek word logos is the parallel word for the Word in Hebrew wisdom here in Proverbs 8. So to paraphrase John 1, it goes something like this. In the beginning was wisdom, and the wisdom became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we beheld his glory. And of course, John is talking about Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God. So it was the son who was there with God as he fashioned the universe, as Proverbs 8 says. It was the son who put on flesh and came and walked among us. He is wisdom with flesh on. And if you get to know him and you get in a relationship with him, then you can become a wise person. And one of the things I've really come to see in doing the personal Jesus study is just how wise Jesus is. I mean, he is wise. Uh, If wisdom is practical know-how, knowing how things really work, No other person in the universe has more practical know-how than he does. 
I mean, he is the creator. Just look at his teachings. I mean, it's full of wisdom. But if wisdom is knowing how things are, if it's, you know, being able to diagnose a situation or being able to walk into a room and intuitively know all the different relational dynamics or meeting someone and then just the first meeting with them being to immediately able to kind of read what, what's going on in their life or look behind their words to see their heart or whatever it might be. Jesus was great at that. You read all the time in the Gospels. Jesus walks into a room and immediately he knows what's in the heart of other people. And we say it's because he's God. Uh, it, yeah, maybe, but maybe it's just because he's wise. I mean, I think there's a feature of wisdom in the way Jesus lived his life that we completely miss because we, we, we don't allow for the category of wisdom because we're so caught up in him, you know, the humanity-divinity dynamic that's a part of his, you know, who he is. We just immediately jump to the divinity rather than say, Jesus was the wisest man that ever lived. In the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he who was with God from the beginning, put on flesh, and came to dwell among us to live the life we should have lived, to die the death that we should have died, to be raised from the dead on the third day, to ascend to the Father in heaven so that from the right hand of God he might send the Holy Spirit into our lives. The promise of that gospel message is if you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, then wisdom lives inside of you now in the person of the Holy Spirit. And so the key to becoming wise is to get to know wisdom. Wisdom is a dance with the Holy Spirit as you go throughout life. And, you know, through the, thing, through the situations where it's not, you know, it's not clear what's right and what's wrong. Wisdom is a dance with the Holy Spirit. And there's only one way to become a wise person. And it's not through spiritual disciplines. You don't become wise by studying the Bible. You, you get full of knowledge. You become wise by getting to know wisdom, by connecting with the Spirit. Jesus in you. Him being led by him, following him, hearing from him. He's a person. And so the way to wisdom is to refuse to live as if there is no right and wrong. And to refuse to live as if there's only right and wrong. And then to begin to dance with the Spirit as you navigate all the confusing realities of life. You'll be less sure of yourself. You'll be more dependent upon God. You'd be more dependent upon the people in your life to help you be wise. We really need one another in this. You'll live life slower. You'll talk a lot less. Pray more. You'll answer questions with, I don't don't know. But what that's an indication of is that you're really becoming a person who's getting to know wisdom. Uh, And this is hard. And we have a lot of work. We're a young congregation. So it's, it's, a, it's a, we're swimming uphill, you know, we're swimming upstream, you know, all of us together. And so we really need God to come and teach us. And so let's pray that he would do that, can we? And then Terry's going to come and lead us in a song. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you indeed are wisdom and righteousness and uh, redemption for us. That in all the areas of our lives where we need wisdom, that you would come and teach us. Uh, and please help us. Help us to know the ruts we're in. Help us to know the places where we've become blind because we've, we've, we've tried to take complex things and make them too simple. Uh, and help us to repent of the ways that we have uh, been a know-it-all and, and lived our lives as if, if everybody would just listen to us, everything would go well. If everybody was just on our side and we've not, we've not taken the opportunity to learn from the people who oppose us. We've not taken the opportunity to open ourselves up to correction and instruction in places where we might need help. Uh, we truly have been prideful and arrogant in so many ways. And the result of our pride and our arrogance is that we, uh, are, some of us are very 
moral and we do the right things and we live our life by the rules, but we really do still lack wisdom. And so we need for you to come and teach us. Lord Jesus, thank you for the promise that wisdom is, is a person and that in the person of the Holy Spirit, you've come to live inside of us so we can lean into you, we can dance with you, we can live our whole lives through all of the difficult, hard, uh, confusing realities that you promised to be there with us and to teach us and to speak to us and to guide us. And so give us ears to hear and give us eyes to see, give us hearts to understand uh, and, and help us to relate to you. Uh, in that way that we might truly become wise, uh, that we might bear fruit that will glorify you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. James James writes in his letter to the churches, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. And so if you need wisdom, the invitation is come to the Lord Jesus to receive it, but come in faith. And the reason you can come in faith, the confidence your heart can hold on to that you can come in faith to receive wisdom from him where you lack it is in the promise of this benediction. That in the Lord Jesus Christ, if your faith is in him, God has already disposed towards you favorably. That he has made up his mind. He is for you. He promises to go with you and to give you all that you need, including the wisdom you need uh, in the places where you need it. And so receive the benediction and then come to him. Uh, with confidence and no doubt, no, no, with no doubts, asking him for the wisdom you need. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.